Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C., and today I'm going to be interviewing Catherine Stewart. She's the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. We're going to be talking about how the religious right is not a social movement, but a political movement. Her book is very detailed and it's fascinating, and I know our conversation is going to be informative But it's also going to be infuriating because you're going to get a little bit, uh, we're going to get in depth about what they're actually doing. And it's just, uh, it's exasperating. Um, Anyway, before we get started, I want to say a couple things. I asked uh, everybody yesterday to do a poll. So for tomorrow's patrons only show, I asked you guys to um, choose. Should I talk with somebody? And it would be Sarah Wood. So she's been on the show before. I would talk with Sarah Wood. Or I can do a story about um, the jerk who dumped me by omission. And uh, he basically just didn't dump me. He just disappeared. And there's a lot There's a lot there. But anyway, um, it looks like people are voting for Sarah Wood. And frankly, I kind of want to talk to Sarah because it's, I don't know, I explained the other day when I was talking to Greg Oliar, my mind is a little scattered. I'm getting better. I, I, I don't know. I'm maintaining a little bit better than I was. I was freaking out on Monday. I was freaking out on Sunday and freaking out on Monday and I'm trying to not freak out. But, um, so for right now I'm okay, but you know, tomorrow I might be a mess again. And it is easier for me to have a guest because when I have a guest, I can kind of go off of what they say. And if I feel like I'm lost or if I, if I'm not making any sense, at least there's somebody else there to pick up the slack. (laughs) Um, but what I'm going to do is, you know, the show will go out. You guys will listen to it. If you haven't already you know, given me your, uh, your responses to which show what you want, go to patreon.com slash start me up and choose, 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 choose. And now, and that's a patrons only show. And I want to explain before I go into my start me up as an independent podcast and it's woman run and I'm the woman before I go into all that spiel, um, what I've decided to do, and I've kind of been flip floppy on this, so I apologize, but you know what? I'm, I'm building this show and I'm just kind of going along and, and seeing what works and what doesn't work. So for right now, and I'm not exactly sure how long, maybe a month. I, initially, I thought it would be maybe one to two patrons-only shows. But I think what I'm going to do for patrons-only shows initially, maybe like a month, is I'm going to make them available to all patrons of any dollar amount, all of you. Um, but what I will do is like within a month or within, you know, maybe a month and a half, whatever it is, those are going to go up to $5. So if you become a patron, a patron for any dollar amount at this point, you will have access to my patrons only shows. And those are going to be, you know, conversations with guests that you love, um, but not interviews. They're just going to be back and forth about whatever current events. There's always going to be more of a personal tone to it. And then, of course, those solo shows where I'm going to be telling stories. Either I'm going to be telling stories about my life and then hopefully finding some meaning in them. Maybe some won't have any meaning. They're just going to be funny and entertaining. Or, uh, But I like, to ha- I like to offer some kind of, I don't know, whether it's a lesson that I learned from it or, or, or some kind of meaning that other people can take. And for instance, this dude who dumped me by omission was just filled with red flags that I ignored. And I think so many people are guilty of this. In fact, I think that before, I, I can't remember if it was before or after, but it might have been after. But I have a girlfriend who we were talking about how we don't, you know, women and men too, but women don't pay attention to red flags when they meet someone that they really, they want it to work out. So they only focus on the things that they like and then they kind of ignore the red flags and that never works. (laughs) Never works. Anyway, so um, 
I, I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing as far as tomorrow, but that's what the, that's what the, uh, patrons only shows are going to be. And, and basically it's just a way for you to kind of get to know me. And it's a way for me to share some things and, and, and stories that I think are, are entertaining. But I'm also, sometimes those solo shows are just going to be me bitching about the patriarchy or whatever is coming down my newsfeed. I can't even, <laughs> so many times when I'm, whether I'm reading Twitter or an article or something on Facebook, I'm like, Rah! and I'm like, I just want to scream my opinion. And of course I do, but I can also do it on the show um if you if you sign up for any tier any tier you get this podcast delivered to your mailbox so you could start for like two bucks to say i don't know let me see how this goes and then you're like hey i really like the show i'm gonna sign up for that five dollar tier and get those solo solo shows or patrons only shows or i'm gonna sign up for ten dollars or twenty five dollars because kimberly is keeping me so entertained especially now during the coronavirus we need to be entertained right so sign up for any dollar amount um, I also like to let everybody know that you can visit the, in the Patreon description of the show. I always include my email address and you could do a PayPal thing, a one-time payment. Those are appreciated. And as like, I do this on every show, but I, and I, I sincerely mean it. I am so grateful for your support. I am so grateful to do this show. It's, it's something that, um, of all the things that I've ever done, you know, I've been an actress, I've been an author, I've been a salesperson, now I'm a podcaster, I've, I've done all kinds of, um, like, I used to sample pies, <laughs> I've done all kinds of things, I went to, 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 like, gourmet stores, and I would sit there offering free pie to people, and it was funny, though, just on a side note, that I would say, hi, would you like a free piece of pie, and people would say no, and I'm like, what's wrong with you? It's free pie. <laughs> anyway, of all the things I've ever done, podcasting is what I really love the most. So supporting this show means everything to me. And I'm incredibly grateful for any support that you give. So thank you for that. And um, you can find Start Me Up on, of course, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found be awesome 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 and i'm never going to stop begging you to do this to please go over to apple podcasts and it's free to subscribe to the show give me a rating give me a good review if you like the show i need them i appreciate them and thank you for everyone who's done it okay i'm done all right now i'm going to talk with author katherine stewart welcome katherine Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, sure. I mean, your book is extremely important. And I think uh, one of the reasons it's so important is we were just kind of talking offline and um, off recording. And we were talking about the fact that you started doing research on this book, which we'll get to in a second, in 2009. But And I did, I did mention it in the intro. Um, but people were questioning you because we had a uh, democratic, we had Barack Obama, democratic president, and they didn't realize that uh, <laughs> there's this whole movement happening and, and the president is not all powerful. That's true. I think a lot of people didn't understand at the time that the movement was really organized and was making a lot of gains through the courts. And it still does. I think um, the lead legal advocacy groups of the religious right really provide a lot of the strategic direction. And that tends to stay sort of off the radar of a lot of a lot of American voters. Yeah, definitely. All right. So what is your book is called The Power Worshippers, And then the subtitle is inside the dangerous rise of religious nationalism. So tell us what it's about. 
Well, it's about the fact that religious nationalism is really not on the fringes of American political life anymore. It's at the center of power, mm -hmm. and it now poses a real danger to our republic. So my book is a deep dive into the inner workings and leading personalities of this movement that is using religion and turning it into a tool for political power. Yes, I think we see that with definitely with the uh, anti-choice movement. Um, so tell us, what is, na what is Christian nationalism? What does that mean? Well, the first thing to know about Christian nationalism is it's not a religion. Mm -hmm. It's a political ideology. Its representatives insist that this foundation of legitimate government is bound up sort of inextricably with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. Mm -hmm. It basically says that the U.S. is founded on the Bible and can succeed only if it stays true to this foundation and its leaders are always warning us that we need to take our nation back because we've gone astray and this is really terrible. And Christian nationalism is also a really effective device for manipulating the public, for mm -hmm. mobilizing large segments of the population to vote a certain way, and also for concentrating power in the hands of a new elite. I want to say something about what it's not. It's not about evangelicals. Mm -hmm. The movement it includes many evangelicals, but it also um, excludes many evangelicals, too. Let's remember that probably most evangelicals of color and four, and one in five white evangelicals did not vote for Trump. Um, and it also includes a variety of uh, representatives of uh, many different types of both Protestant and non-Protestant religion. Hmm. So what unites the movement is not a distinct the theology, but more like a common political vision. Um, so you wrote an article in the New York Times titled, Bill Barr Thinks America is Going to Hell. And I just kind of want you to, um, just after what you just explained here, I thought of that as soon as you were talking about it. So Bill Barr is basically, what is he doing, according to yeah. you? And, yeah, and I, I think mean, you're right. You know, I think Bill Barr <laughs> is a perfect illustration of the fact that we were just discussing, which is that denominations don't really matter in this movement as much as a common political vision. So Bill Barr is a is Catholic, but this is the the his religion specifically is not the point. It doesn't matter that he's a Catholic. He's mm -hmm. a it what matters mostly is that he's determined to he's sort of committed to a more authoritarian form of power, mm -hmm. uh, sort of yeah. a, his so-called unified theory of the executive. Mm -hmm. Now, the second thing that's important to think about when we think about Bill Barr is that he isn't a representative Catholic. In fact, m most Catholics don't understand uh, the, the religion the way that Barr does. He stands for kind of an extraordinary and extreme form of his faith. So he brings up the point that people in the movement are extreme and not representative of their religion. Hmm. And a, another point, I think, general point that Bill Barr brings up is it gives, gives us a good example of what's driving the movement overall, and that's a profound hostility yeah. and paranoia to both religious liberalism and mm -hmm. po and political liberalism and also secularism bar definitively blames non-believers mm -hmm. or what he calls non-believers for every problem in society he's given speeches at Notre Dame um University of Notre Dame and uh, he's written papers on this uh, previously about how he not just blames secularists for all the problems of society like the breakdown of the family etc 
but also suggests that they're profoundly malevolent beings and are out there ransacking everything that's holy and good in society. And this sort of blaming of secularism or um, religious and political liberalism is a central part of the movement today. Wow. He's just so awful. So (laughs) (laughs) uh, I just this is all so upsetting. Um, So is this is Christian nationalism a white movement? Yeah, it's really interesting to – that's a great point. I think a lot of people describe this as white evangelicalism, mm-hmm. and it's really not quite right. I mean, we've just discussed how it's not just evangelicals, and yeah. many evangelicals oppose the movement, but it's also um, not completely a white movement. I mean, let's be clear. For many of the white people in the rank and file, it's an implicitly white movement. Yeah. For them, it's part of a vision – that recovers, um, involves what they think of as recovering, you know, getting back mm-hmm. a nation that was once supposedly both Christian and white. So, you know, they're always ac- uh, accusing the left of playing identity politics. Mm-hmm. But what they're doing here is a form of identity politics and that it ties the idea of America to a specific set of approved religious and cultural identities. Mm-hmm. And it's true also that Trump appeals to the racism of many of yes. his supporters, and that's one of the ways that he gains power through, through all that sort of dog whistling and mm-hmm. also kind of open, you know, the squad and all that kind of stuff. It's really appalling. But, you know, leaders of the movement understand that the electoral future of the movement is not uh, ethnically homogenous, mm-hmm. and in recent years, their outreach efforts have tried to include a lot of conservative pastors of color. Oh, and right. yeah. they have all these events for Latino pastors specifically and black pastors and other figures. And there's an irony there that mm-hmm. there, these pastors of color are being enlisted to fight the culture wars that drive support for a political movement that makes race-based gerrymandering and voter suppression a strategic imperative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just don't understand. I don't understand that. I really don't. Um, so then, okay, explain to me why or how is it possible that people who identify themselves as value voters are supporting somebody like Trump? Yeah, people find that really confusing, and I think a lot of people think it's a transactional relationship. They yeah. think he'll appoint judges right. that are favorable to their interests, you know. To date, 192 uh, federal justices, it's unbelievable, uh, judges to the federal courts. That's over 22% of the judiciary. Or or they think he's going to support economic policies favorable to their pocketbooks. Um, And that's part of it. But, you know, there's something else that's important uh, to note. You can't exploit their support, you know, and their loyalty on purely transactional terms. There's something about his style of politics that speaks to this group. And it's a kind of tribal politics, authoritarian politics. Mm-hmm. They uh, seem to like long for the hard hand of the despot. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and exactly. To the fact that that's not a democratic movement. Right. It really doesn't believe in pluralism and equality and democracy. It really believes in something else. You know, I want to ask you a question, not necessarily associated with your book, but I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it's been, um, in the last couple of days, we've seen, Republicans such as Glenn Beck or the lieutenant governor, I think it was, I can't remember exactly what his title is, of Texas, and then um, Brett Hume, have been suggesting that older Americans sacrifice their lives for the the American economy. 
And Isn't that amazing I, for a movement in particular that insists that women give up our bodily autonomy yes. and the economic futures of our families? You know, that we shouldn't make choices for for ourselves and for our families that are right for, you know, that we can't do anything for, for, for the sake of every last zygote yes. out there. You know, save the zygotes, but uh, <laughs> suggesting that uh, adults, uh, human beings should... Um, you know, it's okay that we can just sort of let people die. It's kind of the irony there is just kind of stunning. Yeah, I mean, I so really much for the pro-life movement. Right? Exactly, and I don't, I don't understand. I mean, it's funny because people on Twitter or something. I mean, they're saying, "Oh, let grandma die." I mean, my mom is seventy. Three. She just turned 73 yesterday. And it's like, well, then she's in that group. She's not my grandma. It's, I mean, it's not to say that one is more important than the other, but it's just the idea of it's not just your grandparents. It's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people. Well, there are pe- people in the 30s. Think about all the healthcare workers who are on the front lines of yeah. this. A lot of the shelter in place stuff and isn't, you know, the attempt to flatten the curve is to protect our healthcare system so that. Yes. A, people who are sick can get the care that they need, and B, people who need the healthcare system for other purposes, right. like having a baby, or yeah. maybe they broke their leg, or maybe they have a suspicious spot on their, you know, on their skin. They want to get it checked yeah. out so that the healthcare system is safe for them. So um, it's really extraordinary. But I think it also points to the fact that in the Trump years, we've seen the movement, you know, is is, is has for decades, you know prioritized tribal loyalty over professional expertise. Mm -hmm. And so in the current crisis, we're kind of reaping the consequences of that. I mean, one of the ways that the movement has succeeded, even though they really represent a minority of the population, is that they're disproportionately organized and um, networked mm-hmm. and you know they they're really a unified movement mm-hmm. so that you know united they win divided they fall so right. if you know the the if they're getting the the message that this is how we're going to be dealing with the crisis you know they they all tried oh this is a political conspiracy against trump they tried that that didn't work yeah. you know do you remember when yes. jerry felt well Fowler jr was saying that you know they tried to take him down with the Mueller report and that didn't work and mm-hmm. this is the Democrats' latest attempt or something like that. Um, so that sort of fell flat and right. now they're sort of all getting aligned with this new line of thinking. Why do you think that, like, why do you think that they're trying, to, what I don't understand um, is, okay, somebody like Brett Hume who's in his 70s is saying, okay, older people like me should be sacrificing their lives um, for, for the country and for the economy. And, Older people who are going to be listening to this would be Trump supporters. I mean, I don't think liberal people are going to fall for this crap. So, I mean, I just, I don't understand why. I mean, do you think it's just that they're falling in line? Simply, that's the simple reason? I think they are falling in line. I think Americans on all ends of the economic spectrum uh, and all ends of the political spectrum are worried about the economy. A lot of People who own or work at small businesses are really concerned right now. A lot of the workforce lives paycheck to paycheck, and I think we all recognize that that's a real problem. But this points to something else that the movement also bears some support for. We have a really poorly developed collective infrastructure, Mm -hmm. and that is a consequence of decades of right-wing economic policy. And the Christian nationalist movement is implicated in that too. The movement has allied itself completely with the 
libertarian, pro-corporate, economic, conservative wing of the Republican Party. So it does share some of the blame that falls on that group when we don't have a kind of robust collective infrastructure to care for people. I mean, Christian nationalists have long supported politicians and policies that have led to the privatization of health care, the undermining of government anywhere. They're constantly demonizing government and seeking to tear down the social safety net, mm-hmm. even calling programs like food stamps unbiblical. So yeah. if we had a stronger social safety net, we would have the tools that we need to support all of the American workers in a time of crisis. You know, we'd have the ability to offer people um, you know, if we had public health care, we'd have a much more um, – of some kind, we'd have a much more sort of co- – some type of coordinated health care system that could meet this uh, this challenge in a much more systematic fashion. And by the way, you know, talk about the denial of science and evidence-based thinking. Months ago, our administration should have been sourcing masks and other yeah. protective gear for our healthcare workers who are the first responders here, they should have been sourcing, uh, sourcing ventilators and other types of machinery that are required to keep people alive, not just people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, but also people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. So I think that um, you know the, this, those aspects of the movement uh, are in part uh, why we are um, less prepared for this crisis than we should right. be. Wow. Um, so how have Christian nationalists influenced what's going on and, and, and the response to the coronavirus? Well, you see different types of response among different sectors. Mm -hmm. Um, something that I've seen recently, I find really concerning is that there's a kind of an attempt I think there was a piece in Politico, Politico this morning about an attempt to kind of sideline Fauci, mm-hmm. um, who is in yes. fact an expert. And I think in the Trump years, we have seen this breakdown of um, uh, formal expertise and mm-hmm. increasing premium paid for political loyalty yeah. and ideological conformity. And I think that that really inhibits our ability to serve the wider public interest. Wow. God, it's, I just, I really don't understand. I really don't. I mean, I, it's just for power. I know they want power, but I just don't understand how people can fall for this. And then. Well, it, yeah, ahead. it's just a different view of the world. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's just different perception. And then there are people who just like to follow. And then, okay, so I hear the term religious liberty thrown around. What does that really mean? At least huh. to them. Right. Well, the way they, they they use the term religious liberty to characterize a lot of their activism today, mm-hmm. and now a lot of it is undoubtedly bound up in a sincerely held belief that conservative Christians should be permitted to discriminate mm-hmm. against yes. LGBT people and others. Mm-hmm. So they want a sort of license to discriminate against others whose views or very being they disapprove. But there's something else happening here. They're, I think these calls are as loud and passionate as they are because they're really bound up in a fear among movement leaders that their discriminatory inclinations might cost them their lucrative tax deductions and yeah. subsidies and um, you know all of the financial benefits that they enjoy that other non-religious nonprofits do not enjoy. And they also have the desire to substantially increase the flow of p- uh, public money in their direction. So 
we have to remember religious organizations already obtain public money through subsidies, yeah. deduct- deductions, grants. They don't have to open their books. So when the money goes into a religious organization, you don't know where it goes or who's getting what. And mm-hmm. that's not quite the same as the way it is uh, for non-religious nonprofits. They just have certain types of protections for a lot of their flow of funds. But, you know, they want to increase that flow. And mm-hmm. it's pretty stark if you look at the instance, uh, the example of public education. So there are a lot of religiously themed, you know, motivated voucher activists who want to increase uh, public funding of private religious schools. Mm-hmm. And they see this as a religious liberty issue. Um, and it goes even further than that. Like eight federal agencies under Trump have proposed changes to rules governing how they work with religious organizations. And they want religious organizations that receive federal funds to have an exemption from complying with anti-discrimination law. So you could be, say, let's say a a religious soup kitchen getting money from the government, and but you could hire only uh, Christian workers Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, exclude women from leadership positions mm-hmm. and things like that, even though your money is coming from the government. And in some of the instances, when the taxpayer money is delivered through a form of indirect aid, like so it goes to the soup kitchen, but it just goes through indirect aid, they're allowed to actually proselytize or require participation in religious services. They could say, well, you can't take our soup until you go to church with us and pray with us and give your life over to Jesus. So this is really uh, an effort to get government funding, direct government funding of religion, and this is, um, you know, against the uh, establishment clause of our First Amendment. Every every time you answer, I'm sorry. no, no, no. <laughs> what you're saying is really good and useful, but it's just it's so. I mean, I I I'm aware of this, and of course, you're you're filling in the details and you're making it much more clear, and that's mm-hmm. why I just keep breathing these sighs. <laughs> it's like, well, you know. I know. <laughs> it's really hard to talk about religion um, because uh, it's hard to talk about the political actions of yeah. religious groups because it sounds like you're snubbing religion right. or bashing religion. That is not at all my intention. Um, there's a difference between taking a swipe at religion itself yeah. and critiquing the political actions of religious groups. Exactly. And I think this hits home again and again. This is not about religion. This is a political movement that mm-hmm. wants power. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's like I look at my grandmother who, you know, died many years ago, but she was a Catholic and, of course, nothing like this. She was nothing like this. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what she would have thought, I especially, you know, in this day and age. I do remember, though, she was such a devout Catholic and she was really a good person. She she was fair and loving and never judgmental. She was, you know, and, and I mean that sincerely, not just because she was my grandmother. I'm not religious at all, but she was a very good, loving person. And um, I don't know, you know, right before I'd say in the last 10 years of her life, she said at the traje- the trajectory that we were going, and I mean, she wasn't speaking in terms of uh, religion, but just politically and where the world was going. I asked her if she would feel comfortable having children at this time. And she said, no. And oh, I mean, wow. yeah, I mean, that was from my Catholic grandmother who went to church every Sunday and she was literally, she's like a saint. She was the closest thing to a saint that I, you know, I've never met anybody like her before, especially someone who doesn't judge. She just wow. never judged yeah. people. 
So I mean, just, I think yeah. people are drawn to religion for a lot of really honorable and wonderful reasons. Right. There's a love of God and scripture, yeah. a desire to, you know, mark life's most difficult passages, certainty in an uncertain world. Yeah. But for, you know, and most people think of their religion as having something to do with care for the soul and being kind yeah. to others. Yes. And certainly caring for the poor and undefended. But unfortunately, uh, what's happened today is that a lot of the uh, leaders of the of religious nationalism have figured out how to take all of people's good intentions and get them to vote on a single issue or maybe a couple of issues. They know very well if you can get people to vote on one or two issues, you can capture their vote. So they've made a huge effort to kind of enlist um, conservative-leaning churches in their efforts. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people who attend these churches and you know, uh, might hold some of these uh, positions and concerns, they're not a Christian nationalist. They wouldn't think of themselves as Christian nationalists. They certainly don't have a kind of um, desire. You know, they would reject the politics of domination and conquest that the movement represents. But if you're voting, if you're allowing, like, you're, you know, a pastor or um, a, a political sort of religious leader to tell you that, there's one issue that you must vote on and and you let yourself you know vote on that particular issue alone then you're basically um kind of assisting in a way in the in the development of uh, of christian nationalism because you're supporting that mm-hmm. agenda by voting you know say it, abortion is always the issue i mean when you yes. talk to movement leaders when they talk to the rank and file or to the pastors abortion is the begin, beginning and the end it's all abortion all the time but you know when they talk to one another in the forums that they share when they talk to their political allies and certainly when they talk to their plutocratic funders they're really advocating for a wide range of policy positions mm-hmm. that a lot of people in the rank and file really would not support. Like, I think, you know, we're dealing with, you know, a rising levels of economic inequality. This mm-hmm. is very well documented by social scientists and economists. Um, and that leads to sort of uncertainty on all ends of the spectrum. So people often really like religion because it offers a sense of a, you know certainty in an uncertain world. Yeah. But if you're, you know, the right-wing politicians, the sort of far-right politicians the movement supports are supporting economic policies that will only intensify that economic inequality. Well, you mentioned abortion, and, you know, your your uh, chapter three is titled Inventing Abortion. So you basically say that uh, this movement has never been about abortion, and I'm right there with you. So tell tell everybody what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think any student of power knows that the first step in controlling the present is controlling the past. And one thing movement leaders have been incredibly successful at is controlling the narrative of the the past. They've sold us this idea that their movement was a grassroots reaction to Roe versus Wade. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was not. So it long preceded that. Yes, it did. So there's this... I'm sorry? No, I said yes, it did. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's a fascinating episode where, remember, when Roe v. Wade was passed, most Republican Protestants supported it. Mm -hmm. It was considered more of a Catholic issue, but it was also cast in context with other types of care for the undefended. Mm -hmm. And it was also um, not something that determined your vote for Republican or Democratic leaders, but in most American uh, 
Protestant Republicans supported it when it passed um, the Southern Baptist Convention published an article in one of their publications hailing the decision. They called it a sensible middle ground. And uh, Barry Goldwater, that great conservative hero, hmm. supported abortion law liberalization at least earlier in his career. Billy Graham himself, <laughs> listen to this, he wrote in 1968, he said, in general, I would disagree with a Catholic stance. I believe in Planned, Planned Parenthood. This wow. is Billy Graham. But, you know, um, what happened was the leaders of a movement that would become the religious right of today got together. And based, they were trying to unite their movement. They mm -hmm. felt like, you know, they weren't empowered and they wanted to get the power together. And so they went down a laundry list of issues they thought might unite, unite their new movement. This is about 1980 or so, about seven years after Roe v. Wade. So Bush was only number five on that list. First on the list, number one, was what they called the unfair tax treatment of racist academies. They thought this was terrible. They, they thought um, that you know the IRS was starting to look at these segregated academies and mm -hmm. saying, why are we giving you tax exemptions? And then number um, two on their list was, I think, the women's movement, but that mm -hmm. was kind of not cohering. Mm -hmm. And they sort of crossed off one issue after another. They came to abortion, and they said, wow, that could work. Wow. Over time, what they right. did is they purged the Republican Party of its pro-choice voices, and now we sort of have the situation we're in today where, you know, they're getting people to vote on these single issues. It's just unbelievable. And, you know, I mean, I, I did an article several years, I don't know, last year, and it was just noting the large number of Republican women who seek out abortion, you know, and I mean, and they're Republican or they're Catholic or they're Christian. And it's just astounding to me that they've gone so far and so much that, you know, I mean, I, they're calling people, people on the Internet, baby killing whores. And, you know, I mean, I yeah. did I did a rally uh, a couple of years ago for We Are Woman and it was in 2012, actually. And we were in D.C. and they, you know, they were there with their truck and their big screens with all which I like to call fetus porn. It's disgusting. But they have all the, um, you know, the huge. It was like 10 feet tall and in color. It's nihilistic. It's really nihilistic. It's like they're exposing, you know, children to this. And yes, I know, it's really appalling. It's so gross. OK, so let me ask. OK, your book. Um, includes fascinating bio, uh, bio, I can't say the word, biographical sketches, and it illustrates different aspects of Christian nationalism. So let's start with, and I hope I say his name right, Ralph Drollinger. Um, Drollinger, yeah. Drollinger. Who is he, and tell us about that. He is fascinating. Drollinger is the founder of a group called Capital Ministries that targets political leaders at the highest echelons of power. So if you look at their website, it's called uh, like capmen.com. You can see everything. A dozen current and former members of Trump's cabinet are listed as cabinet sponsors, including hmm. Mike Pence, wow. uh, Pompeo, <sighs> Azar, um, uh, a whole bunch of them, uh, Bridenstein, Bridenstine. What was that? What was and, that website? Uh, it's, I think it's called cap. No, maybe it's capmen.org. If you Google Capital Ministries, Ralph oh, Stollinger, okay. you'll find it. Okay. I mean, none of this is hidden. It's all right. It's all in plain sight. So he has these Bible study groups targeting the White House that they attend. And then he also has Bible study groups targeting the House of Representatives and the Senate, various state houses. And he conducts a form of shadow diplomacy with political leaders around the world. So I think it's fair to say Drawlinger is one of the most politically connected, if not the most politically connected and influential pastors mm -hmm. in America. 
So the expansiveness of his positions on domestic, economic, and foreign policy hits home the fact that this this movement is a political movement and not merely a stance in the culture war. He promotes the idea that social welfare programs have no basis in scripture. He's an ardent male supremacist who says that God wants women to be subordinate at church and at home. He's like, might not be what I want, but it it's what God wants oh because, God. you know, obviously he knows exactly what yeah. God wants. He, you know, he's, oh my gosh, he's got this really scary Bible study. I, I bet it's still up online where he advocates parents to beat their children, to spank oh their children. God. And he, it's like why spanking is, you know, the biblical way of disciplining your children. And if you hesitate, you need to think about, you know, you know, not your life, not this life, but, you know, your, 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 your status in the next life. I mean, it's really kind of frightening. He also, um, you know, is against progressive income taxes and has this sort of theology of taxation that unabashedly favors the rich. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is all music to the ears of the movement's most, you know, richest funders and most plutocratic funders, many of whom rely on minimal workers' rights and economic and environmental deregulation to maintain and increase their profits and and want sort of a theology that's going to justify the fact that they are as wealthy as they are. Mm -hmm. I I think it reflects the movement's longstanding alliance with moneyed interests and its hostility to the notion of social and economic equality and you know, as you noted earlier, it's in many ways it's the exact opposite interpretation of the Christian religion yes. <laughs> as perhaps most American Christians understand it. Wow, yeah. Um, it's just, well, it's like you said, it's a political movement. This isn't a social movement. It's not a religious movement. It is a political movement, and that's where it all lies. Mm-hmm. Um, so you introduced your readers, and I'm not, I don't know how to say this guy's name. It was Ro- Rosas Rushduni. You saying? did it really well. Oh. <laughs> yeah, perfect. <laughs> so he's a theologian who advocated a return to biblical law in America. So tell us what about his influence on this movement. Sure. I mean, much of the current crop of Christian nationalists are descended from, among others, uh, Rush Dooney, who is this mid-century theologian. Look, any history of the movement uh, that's you know we can discuss here is going to be absurdly reductionist, mm-hmm. but the. He he does have a kind of outsized influence in the development of the movement, especially as it is today. Now, the main thing to know about Rushduni is that he was intensely hostile to the principle of equality. Hmm. He endorsed an austere biblical literalism, as do many of the movement leaders today. And he endorsed these rigid hierarchies, as they do, which, as they do, he asserted were ordained by God. Like, in his view... Um, uh, you know, men are destined by the Bible to rule over women. Mm-hmm. Um, he thought the 14th Amendment, which guarantees uh, all citizens equal protection under the law, was a sort of, he he said it began the court's uh, recession from its conception of America as a Christian country, which, and he thinks it's a job of Christians who believe like him today to sort of uh, take it back and rescue America from its commitment mm-hmm. to godless secularism. And like Drollinger, his theology also included an opposition to government assistance to the poor. He cast social welfare programs as slavery to the state, which is kind of an incredible thing. So he shares so much with Christian nationalists of today, the idea of of America is like a redeemer nation chosen by God, that it should be an orthodox Christian republic in which women are subservient to men, 
um, he hated public education, as do a lot of the yeah. Christian nationalist leaders today. They're always going on and on about how bad government schools are. Um, so in Russia, he abhorred public schools, and he doesn't, you know, doesn't think people should be paying taxes to support the poor. Um, uh, and at some point, you know, he has this idea that America deviated horribly from its mission and fell under the control of atheist and or liberal uh, liberal elites. So. This is a kind of cornerstone of Christian nationalism today, and um, a lot of Rashtunis, you know, people today, some of them don't know who he is. Mm -hmm. Others sort of uh, pretend, you know, that he wasn't important to them, but the ideas that he sort of crystallized are uh, are in the sort of at the center of the movement today. And when you look at folks like David Barton, who's a kind of leading figure of the Christian nationalist movement I call him the Where's Waldo of the Christian Nationalist Movement because he sits on the boards of so many different initiatives and um, of all different types, data initiatives, messaging initiatives, you know, political initiatives. He, he quotes Rush Dooney in his writings. Hmm. And then organizations like the Family Research Council, I found quotes from Rush Dooney in some of the publications of their different um, organizations. So... Um, you know they can try to disavow Rush Dooney, but um, but he is really kind of at, his ideas are at the center of the movement today. You know, I wanted to ask you what what was the what was it that made you want to write this book? Oh wow, um, it's very personal. You know, I was a mom in California, two thousand nine, living in Santa Barbara, two kids in a public school, and a good news club came to my daughter's public elementary school. She was like in first grade at the time. And at first I thought, oh, what could be bad about a group with such a very nice name? And then I learned they were teaching Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. I was very naive. I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. And look, mm -hmm. I'm a big free speech proponent, and I also think you can teach about the Bible from a non-sectarian non-sectarian you know, standpoint yeah. in public schools as long as it's like, um, you know, not – taught from a religious point of view, like as history or as uh, literature or something like that. But I soon realized that the Bible study group, the good, they're called Good News Clubs, they were, their aim is to convert very young children in their first years of learning wow. to a deeply fundamentalist form of Christianity in public schools and to use the public schools, you know, their position in the schools to try to get kids to recruit their peers to the club. And a lot of the kids attending the club were starting to engage in what I could only call faith-based bullying mm -hmm. of their other classmates. They'd say, I know this religion must be true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school. So they were basically confusing little children wow. into thinking that their school endorsed a religion, even though it's an outside group. Mm -hmm. And this seemed to me like wildly inappropriate yes. in a public elementary school setting. But... I also thought it was a kind of relic of the American past. It turns out I was wrong about that. And the more I learned about the clubs, and real, you know, I realized there were thousands of these clubs operating in public schools nationwide. Nobody had written about them. Mm -hmm. For some reason, people have a really hard time writing about religion, mm -hmm. you know, because they don't want to seem critical of religion. Right. But they were operating in our public schools, taking advantage of taxpayer-funded institutions. The more I learned about this, the more you know, concerned I became, and. I just started doing more and more research and published a book in 2012 about the topic and um, continued to research. And so 
this book that I've got now, The Power Worshippers um, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, it's a culmination of over 10 years of research and, and writing on the topic. Wow. wow. What is uh, what is Project Blitz? Oh, Project Blitz is a really interesting initiative. It's one of the many initiatives of the movement. It's a legislative initiative targeting state legislatures, mm -hmm. and they, it aims to flood multiple state legislatures with coordinated simultaneous bills in the hope that they will eventually become law. Each of these bills is intended to chip away at the separation of church and state. So there's literally a Project Blitz playbook, and I write about it in my book. It shows that they've the movement leaders have consciously um, embraced a strategy of advancing their goals through deception and interaction. So you know what the American Legislative Exchange Council is, right? Uh, it's a kind of bill go. mill where mm -hmm. people get together and they craft model bills mm -hmm. that, get, that get flooded out through the states. Okay. Project Blitz is kind of like that. Gotcha. You know, they have, like, legislation they'll, like – we should put in, like, there are three different categories of legislation. So the first and easiest category is in, involves in God we trust bills. Every public school should carry a sign that says in God we trust, or even every public school classroom has to bear a sign saying in God we trust. So they craft the bill, and then all of these far-right, you know, legislators adopt it and propose it, and then they sort of flood it through the states. And... Um, you know, people who oppose this type of thing spend a lot of energy trying to oppose it, but in some states it's going to pass. Mm -hmm. So, and that's exactly what's happening today. So, even though it seems like a symbolic issue, it's slowly chipping away at separation of church and state. So, in multiple states today, including like Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Florida, these prominently placed in God We Trust signs are now mandatory in every, every public school building. Wow. Oh, just unreal. But, yeah, and it doesn't even stop there. I mean, the, the third phase and most consequential phase is our bills that legalize a, a right to discriminate yeah. against those, you know. So the third bills are like the, you know, anti-LGBT bills, right. or we can discriminate against anyone whose religion doesn't conform to what we want it to. So that could mean discriminating, as one case has shown, against a Catholic woman who wanted to uh, foster children and she went to a state-funded agency and the agency was a religious agency and says well you're the wrong religion because you're catholic oh so God. i think it was an eve run by evangelicals they were like well you know right by protestants so was like well we don't we don't let foster uh catholics foster our kids because even though we're taking state money we just wow. you're the wrong religion i mean it's really kind of astonishing isn't yeah. it yeah i mean it reminds me of the hobby lobby ruling it's just uh, you know, legal to, to discriminate. Yeah, the right to discriminate is a big part of this agenda. It's just so upset. So how can we turn the tide? Well, I think that um, if you look at what religious nationalists have done, um, they kind of offer a playbook, don't they? <laughs> They've in invested in data, media, mm -hmm. and messaging. There's mm -hmm. no reason that um, progressives and can't do that, too. They unite when necessary. I think this is the biggest factor. Look, 40 to 50 percent of American voters simply don't turn out on Election yeah, Day. I know. So if you have a small but organized mm -hmm. group, you can dominate. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, we need to recognize, you know, the power of the people. If we get out the vote and we get people to sort of unite when it's necessary, mm -hmm. when it matters, and to focus on issues beyond the personalities. 
So whoever the front runner may be may not be your person. You might not want to have a beer with that person or yeah. think that they're really nice or maybe they annoy you because of, you know, whatever. They do this or that. They're perfect. Right. But think about – don't think about, you know, whether you like the person. Think about the judges that they're going to appoint. Exactly. Are they better than Trump's judges? Think about the people they're going to lead – uh, appoint to lead cabinets. Are those people going to be better than Trump's political appointees yeah. who are chosen not for their expertise, but for their devotion to a particular ideological creed? I mean, if we can start to get people to think on those terms, and not just hold themselves accountable for voting, but also to bring their neighbors. You mm-hmm. know, for years, I thought yeah. we should have like a, a plus one a campaign where everybody just brings one other person to polls with them. Yes. You know, Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that we could be doing. I wrote a book on the importance of voting. And, um, great. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I didn't, I wasn't always political. I mean, I definitely, my first vote was cast for Bill Clinton. And I was, I don't know how old I was. Uh, It was my early 20s. And then ever since then, I voted. But that doesn't mean I've always been politically aware most of the time. And I'll admit, my mother was always politically aware. So I would ask for her advice. And, I, you know, I'm a Democrat. Although, interestingly, I did not even understand the difference between Republicans and Democrats and had registered as a Republican. But, if, you know, I quickly changed that over. And, you know, but I, but I know that the thing that bothers me about I guess it's just human nature is so many of us are not motivated to do anything until we are uncomfortable and and, and we wait until we're uncomfortable. It's like people who smoke cigarettes wait to find out they have lung cancer before they quit, which thankfully I quit <laughs> years ago, but it's like, th- it's that mentality of I can't be bothered because I'm comfortable and I don't know how we can, Maybe this particular experience that we're going through right now, starting with uh, Trump, you know, I, I like to say being installed as opposed to being elected, although there were a lot of people who genuinely elected him, um, voted for him. I would like to think that this moment in history will serve at least for, you know, a, a couple of generations to come to to kind of think in terms of prevention as opposed to waiting till after we're sick or after the the shit falls and then we go oh now we have to do something i mean it would be nice i mean this coronavirus is a perfect a perfect example of why we should get ahead of things before they happen and i just hope that um people realize that uh, obviously people who listen to my podcast are they are voters they are they are prepared and they are informed um, we just, we just, but I think your idea is absolutely right. We should try to find someone, although in this election, we're just going to have to try to get someone to do a mail-in ballot because I don't know that we're going to be able to actually vote in person. But I really want to thank you for writing, uh, writing this book. It's, it, it's extremely informative, but it's also interesting. And obviously it was born out of a personal experience that just caused you to look deeper and deeper. And the more you found, you know, you put together for us and thank you for, writing it it's it's a beautiful book it's a wonderful book and it's very intelligently written so why don't you tell people where they can find it sure thank you so much for having me on the podcast i really appreciate (laughs) your support and um your you know your your listeners who are concerned about these issues too 
So my book is called The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. You can get it on at your local independent bookstore, or you can order it on Barnes & Nobles or Amazon. I think in this current environment, it is important to try to support our local bookstores if yeah. we can, but Amazon is obviously the easiest way for a lot of us um, and very reliable yes. in terms of stocking. And then if you want to follow my work, you can follow me on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there, so that's K-A-T-H-S-S-T-E-W-A-R-T. And um, thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, thank you. And just that I'll let everyone know that I always put, you know, the email. You can always find where to follow, where to purchase in the description of the Patreon um, show that this is on. So it'll be all there for you. And thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. You have a wonderful day. All right, you too. Wow, that's just, I'm not, you know, I mean, I read a big part of her book, and I'm not surprised or anything, but I'd like to add, um, she's a great guest. My sigh was because of her subject matter, not because of her. I think she's wonderful. She's so smart and so articulate. I love smart, articulate women. Um, One of the things I wanted to mention, too, was there is a book that is it's not like this book. It's different, but I think it kind of goes along with bit written by a woman named, I think it's Claire Connor or Claire Connor Mork or something. I can't remember her last name, but it's Claire Connor and it's C L A I R E, I believe. So Connor C O N N O R. I highly recommend her book. It's called wrapped in the flag. She also, these two books would go very well together and give you such a, a great understanding of the religious movement. And then also, Claire Connor's father was a founding member of the John Birch Society. And the John Birch Society eventually turned into the Tea Party. As you know, in 2010, liberals got comfortable and didn't feel that they needed to vo- they did They didn't feel they needed to vote. So re- a whole bunch of Tea Party people got in. <laughs> Joe Walsh was one of them, but he's kind of changed his tune now. Anyway... The idea that, you know, Barack Obama was president, everybody was like, oh, we don't have to show up. And then what happens? All these kind of John Birchers get in and John Birchers are extremists and they def- they're they not um, necessarily all evangelical, but they, they go hand in hand. And Claire talks about how her father was friends with, I think, Fred Koch, and that's the Koch brothers' dad. And how they started up the John Birch Society. And I mean, it was a whole bunch of bullshit as far as, you know, like not believing in fluoride and water. And but, you know, but it goes on to all these anti-abortion, anti um, anti-feminists. And, you know, they like they like to discriminate, all that stuff. So those books go hand in hand. But I do highly recommend if you're bored and you're home, <laughs> the power worship is power worshipers can't speak is really worth the read it's so good and it's um i think the more armed we are with information um just as a group the better off we are you know we're gonna already everybody on this podcast is going to be voting for the democratic nominee and if you're not then why are you even here (laughs) but you already know the importance of it but maybe you can buy this uh for your you know family member or something who doesn't quite understand it and then just spread Spread the news, spread the news. Now, um, let's see, what else? Before I go, you can find me, Author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y, and that's on Twitter, at Author Kimberly. You can also find my books on Amazon at Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y. Don't forget that extra E. 
um, Kimberly A. Johnson. And mostly I sell Peyton's Choice, which I, I think is funny because it's my young adult book and, and I wrote it, uh, it's about abortion, teen love and all that. But it's just funny to me because, um, well, that was the most fun I ever had writing. I loved writing that book. It was so much fun. I felt like it was kind of easy for me because I did use the drop, the backdrop of my teen years. So there was, I could draw, you know, they say, write what you know, right? Well, I never had an abortion, but I certainly experienced teen years at a beach town, which was freaking awesome. Awesome. And so I was able to, you know, just take experiences that I had in my real life and then alter them a little bit and then put them in the story. So that's the book that sells the most. So Peyton's Choice, P-E-Y-T-O-N. You can find that on Amazon too. So many books, so many books. And I do believe, as I said in the intro, I'm going to be talking with Sarah tomorrow. I think I'm going to give it uh, an hour or two more to find out if there's anybody voting on the poll that I offered you guys. So um, I think Sarah and I will talk. And frankly, as much as I do, I do want to tell this story about, I like to call him, well, he's like the red flag guy, but I've always referred to him as the guy who dumped me by omission because he didn't dump me. He just disappeared off the face of the earth. And there were so many red flags that I just totally ignored. And that's kind of the... Um, the lesson of the story, if you will. Um, but I wrote it all out on my Patreon page, my writing page, a uh, while back. So I've got the whole story, and I, I will have it for you, whether I, I don't think I'm going to be doing it tomorrow, but in case I do, in case like a whole bunch of new people come on and vote for that, um, I've got it. I'll, I'll do it next month, and it's it's fun story, even though... I was a stupid fucking idiot <laughs> and ignored all those red flags. Anyway, uh, thank you for listening, and we will see you tomorrow.